young Yone grabbed the silver mouthpiece Tracked down a kid who brought a trumpet to Pomona May Yone have it on a free two-year lease Hello and welcome to Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast, and speaking of music, the song that played me in is entitled The Best Goddamn Band in Wyoming. It is from the album 1975. It is by No No Boy, and my guest today is Julian Saperiti, who is that fantastic voice singing there. Uh, all things No No Boy are in the show notes, so you can go to the band camp, and there's a website. There's a documentary also on uh, his website, nonoboyproject.com, where it says, No No Boy is an immersive multimedia work blending original folk song, storytelling, and projected archival videos or images all in the service of illuminating hidden American histories, which uh, I didn't know when I first heard his music. I saw him on KEX, the Seattle station that I can't seem to get out of my mouth right now, KEXP, or KXEP, P-E-X-P-K. Anyway, (laughs) um, I heard the music, and I reacted to that. And so I immediately went to... No No Boy's Instagram, I invited him on the podcast, and then I started researching him, which I talk about in the episode, but I learned the what he does and the history of his work, and it was just really fascinating. Um, so, And you will learn more about that. But all these links are in the show notes. Uh, you can go to the website, and there's a documentary, as I said, about him and his work, and it's really incredible. I'm also putting... The video in the show notes, a link to the video for the song that played in the show, because it's really great. And I, every time I hear the song, I choke up. It's such an incredible song. And it, just all of all of his music is really incredible. And I really am grateful I had this conversation with him because it was very different than a lot of my conversations. Um, he's got a great mind. That's all I'm going to say. Great mind. Um... There is a part two to this conversation. It lives on my Patreon. You can go to themattdwyer.com. That'll link you to all things Matt Dwyer, my social media, my Patreon, merch. Um, Most of my episodes have a part two. This has a part two. The part one also on my Patreon is a bit longer. I did some editing. It also should be noted, very importantly, that about 30 minutes into our conversation, my daughter came to my door and was... Sometimes my TV magically turns on, and she wanted me to turn it off. <laughs> um, but uh, So it spun our conversation into a s- slightly different direction, but I just wanted to let you know, because I edited out so you don't have to l- listen to me talking to my daughter about the TV. But um, just so you know, 30 minutes in, we start talking. We I sort of make a point out of it. And anyway, it goes into, you'll get it. Um Real quick, there is a project I've been working on that I can't announce yet, but it is with the Climate Emergency Fund. So if you want to go into the show notes and donate some money to the Climate Emergency Fund, that because, you know, frankly, things with the environment aren't going so well. Uh, you probably are aware of what happened in Pakistan and what's happening in other parts of the world. And it's I'm in Los Angeles where there is an insane heat wave right now. So I think taking care of our climate is pretty important, and the Climate Emergency Fund is doing a lot of great work. And I'm very close to be aiming, being able to announce what it, the project is that I'm working with or on with them, 
but it's going to be great. I promise you. Uh, and if you go to thematdwire.com, you'll be able to follow me on social media and hear what that is. Very close to announcing it. It's going to be fantastic. Speaking of thematdwire.com, if you go to kellyardwire.com, uh, also in the show notes, she created my website. She does tons of websites. Uh, she does a lot of big podcasts. She does uh, artists, actors, politicians. She does all kinds of websites. So if you need one, kellyardwire.com. She does My Favorite Murder, that podcast. I don't listen to that podcast, but it's popular. So that means it's good, right? <laughs> good means, po- popular means good. Um, I didn't mean that as a slight. I don't know anything about it. Um, other than that, I oh, I uh, Kyle Field of Little Wings, been a guest on the show a couple times. You may realize, you may know that. And he didn't, we did a reverse episode where he interviewed me on my 200th anniversary. Anyway, Kyle did the show almost two years ago. We've texted phone calls for two years. We never met. I went and saw him play the other night uh, at the at the lodge in Highland Park, Los Angeles. Fantastic show, by the way. Uh, but it was just uh, we hadn't met, so it was nice to meet him. We hugged because we've shared so much over text and phone. But what it's done is it's rekindled my. I bought one of his albums at the show. I always I. But uh, I've been really exploring Little Wings again, which is one of my favorites. Um, and uh, I just encourage you to go check it. It's his body of work. It's like when you see like years of music put into like a little over an hour and you get different periods of... You just realize how uh, immense and great somebody's body of work is over the years. And he's really got a great body of work. Also, you know who's got a great body of work? No, no, boy. My... I I have to I I know I don't I don't want to sound like a dope or anything by praising him or like some kind of like showbiz guy who's like really great stuff. But this conversation is great. His music is really great. It really I don't know. It's just there's something magical about this guy, and I think you should go check out all of his music and purchase it and share it and tell the world about it. But enough of my ramble, bamble, babbles. Here is my conversation with Julian Saperiti. Please enjoy. And that's a story from Old Hot Mountain. I'm the best band you never did see. Locked up in- uh, herniated disc sciatica stuff. So had like a double whammy of like really bad flare up with that and COVID. What so about half the summer was a bummer. Um, it was good though. Lots of, lots of, not catching up because I didn't need to, but watching horrible dynamic reality TV and playing <laughs> Stardew Valley. Well, we did we did that. So some productivity, at least in the virtual virtual realm. What's the reality stuff you're into? My my wife's big into reality shows. I I've like just ceased to watch almost everything. Oh, uh, you name it. Um, really love um, F Boy Island. That was really good on HBO Max. I like. Um, so I will watch all this with my fiance and co-producer of Nona Boy, Amelia. Um, what else do we watch? I mean, any Netflix reality show, there's a great show called the ultimatum where couples who should break up, get to the point where one of them wants to, wants to marry and the other one doesn't. And so they go on a TV show and the ultimatum is 
by the end of this, you either propose or we're done. And to force the issue, they end up dating other people out of other couples who are also in the ultimatum process. And it's really messed up and, and amazing. I mean, I think just the, um, so a lot of my training as an academic is in anthropology. So I kind of look at these shows as like really incredible, just like post, post-apocalyptic media <laughs> examples of like anthropological studies of the human condition. And I find it so fascinating. I also feel better about myself because you realize when people, everyone is like a terrible person at some points in their life. And that's a nice pressure off. Like just everyone kind of uh, gets really frustrated or cries or breaks down. And I, I feel like, especially in professional circles, we just don't have that kind of honesty. And so when you see these like 25 year old people just like screaming and yelling and punching holes in walls and crying and worried about they'll never find love. I really find that reassuring and it makes me feel better about myself, but also some kind of solidarity because I've been there too at points in my life. You know what I mean? We've all been there. And I, I kind of like that lack of pretense. It's like, wow, we're all just being human is very hard and we're just pretending to, to make sense of it. So, yeah. That was my summer, just <laughs> reality TV. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's just I, there's so much. I, I just came out of therapy, so there's so much rolling around in my head. And you can researching it. This is the thing: is like I heard your music and I reacted to your music, and I was like, "Oh fuck, mm-hmm. I like this guy." Okay. And then I started, and that's why I was like, "Oh, I want to talk to him. This music's great." And then once I started researching you and where it all comes from it's just been like it's all right up my alley but it's also it's just it's you've caused a lot of thought and i don't know and i've emotionally respond to your music which is uh you know i like music but it's like the best band goddamn band in wyoming i fucking weep every time i listen to the song yeah yeah thanks man i mean that's sort of the the point right it's just Someone quoted back something to me I said the other day in, in, in some interview where I apparently said music is like a, a Trojan horse for my teaching, um, for my scholarship. And uh, I don't really remember that interview because it was a while ago, but I stand by that. And I'm glad someone brought that up because I think your experience, I was just talking to a few other people this last week who kind of had similar things. It's like, I want the music first and foremost to stand on its own. Like if it comes out, on the Spotify algorithm machine, uh, you know, and just like, you know, weekly indie or weekly folk playlists for someone that's awesome. And I hope it just like the, the rhythms and the melodies as a songwriter and producer, I hope that sticks first and foremost, but then, you know, if you do a good enough job with that, people might look you up and listen to the rest of the album. And, and lucky for me, you know, there's a lot of content, you know, from my research that I think is important to share. Um, so that's exactly your, your case study. You're you're a great case study for this. You know, that's exactly how it should happen because so much of like the work that I do, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, whether I like it or not is put into this sort of, uh, diversity, cultural studies thing, which is what my academic training is. That's fine. But, um, I feel like so much of the time in music right now, and you're like a white dude, so I don't expect you to comment on this <laughs> for fear of ostracization. But for me personally, I just find like it's a lot of half-assed art with with um, that gets funded or people go see it because of representation or because of um, 
you know, just kind of like liberal virtue signaling and stuff. And so I'm very wary of that. Um, you know, the music has got to be good. The art's got to come way, 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 way first. And then, you know, I've just lived my life, you know, I just happened to do a PhD. So I learned a lot of stuff about Asian America, about immigrants, about refugees. And so that's in the lyrics and the, the how I record and how I research. But um, I thank you very much for, you know, liking the music first. Cause I, I, I've done a lot of interviews now for the album, which is very cool and lucky. Um, but a lot of times it's, it's going for that. I feel like I'm being used for diversity wallpaper. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like some NPR liberal, uh, can just sort of feel better about their day because they checked off. Oh, I've never had a Vietnamese American singer before. Let me put them in my menagerie, you know, next to, whoever, you know, like Valerie June, all these wonderful people. But sometimes I feel like we're collected when we're like these sort of minorities in traditionally white space, like folk or country or indie rock and stuff. So appreciate a lot that it came through listening first and not just um, politics. I was curious to like, to go back to your early days. Cause uh, I heard you speaking about your first band that broke up in 2010 and uh, I was curious who you were in that period because you sort of, I got the impression that maybe you were like me in the 2010 era, living a little loosely. <laughs> living loose, man. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was just in a rock and roll band from, well, I mean, from high school, junior year on through the time I was, so I was like 16 years old to 2010 like 25 years old, just nine straight years of all I did was, you know, try to write songs and, and produce records on little cassette machines or digital eight tracks and eventually like record companies, st studio stuff, but touring around in vans and you have to be sort of um, a messed up person to want to do that. Um, you know, there's a lot of misguided but also, I think, virtuous, both at the same time, Kerouac, Woody Guthrie, Vagabond, imitating lifestyle. I think that appeals, especially to a lot of young men, you know, um, on the older cusp of millennial. And, uh, yeah, I was living a little loose. Um, I didn't really do drugs or drink at all when I was on the road. So I could have lived looser and that honestly would have made it a more enjoyable experience. Cause if anyone's toured for like two months straight, you really do need to self-medicate, <laughs> which is part, which is part of the problem. I'm being completely honest because if you're completely sober, you're just fully aware, you know, okay, we're doing this again, doing this again. I'm hyper aware that only five people are at this show in Des Moines and, uh, I can't really sleep that well cause I'm completely awake and sober and I'm sleeping on this couch, you know, after this DIY show or whatever. And yeah, I just couldn't, I was, so I was a very unloose person living that kind of loose lifestyle. Um, it's funny because I never heard it articulated better than uh, who's a drummer from the black keys, Pat Carney. I think that's his name. He did a podcast that I listened to, uh, about being on the road and he was interviewed and he said, yeah, he, he was dating this girl who was like a grad student or something when they were both in their early twenties. And she, she complained and broke up with them at the end of the tour. It's like, wow, you're like really emotionally vacant. Like, you know, I just can't be with you. 
And he was like, yeah, no shit. I'm emotionally vacant. I'm driving around in a van, like and <laughs> working from like 11 PM to 3 AM every day and eating like bologna and that's it. And mustard packets that we get at gas stations. Of course I'm emotionally vacant. And, and, and I think like that much like watching reality TV was sort of like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Some of us like are just, uh, we push it a little too hard, but that's all you, that's also how you, you learn and you get at the juicy stuff of life is by living a little fast and loose, making those mistakes, but then, uh, trying to see how that can balance you out. So I feel like I was very, very lucky because if I was touring till I was 25, 2010, then I kind of retired for a decade and went into grad school, which leads us up basically till, till now, um, you know, and kind of returning to music, it's, it's night and day. How I view art, how I view music, how I view the role of, uh, playing shows, uh, or songwriting and things are just like slower and better. And I feel like, um, I got like a, a lot my midlife crisis out of the way, a lot of like ups and downs. Like you mentioned, you were doing therapy earlier today, like a lot of that and like going to Buddhist meditation retreats and things like this, because I sort of stepped back in 2010, once I retired from the road where I wasn't a particularly upstanding young gentleman in society not particularly bad, just, you know, pretty average kind of emotionally vacant rock and roll musician. And I was like, Oh, how can I do life a little better? You know, how can, how can things slow down? So they're more manageable. How can I breathe a little bit more? How can I, uh, I don't know, just live a little bit more colorful and interesting of a life. And, you know, then that led me to the last 10 years of, I wound up with a fucking PhD somehow. Um, <laughs> and, uh, that led me back to music because I realized that lifestyle wasn't for me, but I liked all the books I was reading, all the people I was talking to. So kind of combined both of my, my professions, you know, into this weird thing that I do with no, no boy now. Um, so yeah, yeah, I was a was a little bit of a rascal growing up, but I have become more and more grateful for the chance to be a rascal because otherwise I think I probably would have been like most people turned 45 or 50 and then just have a mental breakdown because I never pushed it or you know, lived that dream and sacrificed all that mental health and stuff like that. It comes for you eventually. I feel like uh <laughs> Yeah. We all try to fit ourselves into, into these boxes of like, um, you know, whatever we think we're supposed to be. And at the end of the day, we're just supposed to breathe. And it took me a while to figure that out. Yeah. I feel even like in your twenties creatively, like I felt like what I was doing creatively, there was already sort of a road you were supposed to take. So it wasn't much different than a lot of people's lives anyway. Like, Oh, go to college, get a good job. Mine was go to this theater, end up writing on this TV show or whatever. And I was like, that's not what I want to do. But like, it was already this decided sort of, and in your twenties, you're supposed to have it all figured out already, but you don't. <laughs> There's yeah. no fucking way. <laughs> you can't, you can't. I mean, like it's impossible. Like I was just at Brown university, which is a pretty well-known, at least in America college, Ivy league school. And I was teaching the most privileged and some might say smartest, but really just, better trained and educated kids in America. And they were intellectual giants as far as compared to me when I was 17, 18, going off to music college. Um, but emotionally, um, children, 
you know, and uh, you, you just can't take any shortcuts. You can get as smart as you want, but that's no substitute for, for living a life. And I think the blessing about being on the road and burning it at both ends for so long was I, I've, I've always felt like those 10 years were, were a lifetime, lifetime of experiences. Like, um, I don't know, helps me resonate with art, helps me, um, put things in perspective, helps me, uh, I don't know, like, uh, you sort of stretch the boundaries of what life can be, you know, to be that, um, young and wild and poor. This is very important to know that you can live out of a car, which I did for a while. And, um, you'll be okay. You know, that makes, um, when you get a real job, which I'm still waiting on, uh, it might not ever do. Um, but it makes you, it makes you more, I think, grateful. You don't just expect stuff because if you're on the track, it's, I don't know. I think it's good. Maybe it's good for some people, but I'm not one of those people. I can only speak to my own experience, but, uh, but yeah, there's no, there's no easy way to uh, substitute live in life. You just can't do it. And so even those, the geniuses, the 18 year old, 22 year old geniuses at Brown university, they're emotionally, um, sometimes a lot more stunted because they are, if you talk about that track, like you said, it's like, uh, there, man, there's no getting out of that track for a lot of people. My, my biggest hero is one of my closest collaborators on the no, no boy project. One of the, uh, he was a PhD student at Brown and, uh, his name's Juan. He went down to the Texas border with me a lot. Just one of my best friends, just awesome dude. Translated a lot when I did research down there and, uh, he quit his PhD to join the air force. And it's like, wow, that's like the only individual I met at Brown university. And he got flack for it, man. Of course he got flack for it. Right. It's like, we're paying you to come get a PhD at Brown university. And you want to do what? Like that's gotta be unheard of. And in, in when there's like not a war on or something, you know, um, for an Ivy league PhD to, but he wanted to do something. And, and that's like biggest inspiration I took away. Cause again, like if you, life is to be lived and, and I'm not a pro military guy, my dad's a vet and stuff, but, uh, I got my different feelings. Uh, but that that's by far the most inspirational act I saw, you know, with all, amongst all those geniuses was a person who left and, you know, that's wild. What did going down, did it, was it connected to going down to Mexico, his inspiration to go to the air force or was it totally different? I don't know. There's a lot of stuff. He's a really interesting dude. Um, and, uh, I know he's got ambitions to be a public servant, you know, maybe do like local politics back in Missouri where he's from, well, he's from Columbia originally. So he's a, he's an immigrant. Um, and so a lot of times those of us who come from those families are a little less jaded, especially on the liberal side with the military and, um, just being American stuff like that. Cause you are very appreciative because you're coming from a place that you had to leave. It's a story in my, at least on my mom's side of the family. Um, so I think that was part of it. Just, just more than your typical, um, overeducated liberal, like the rest of us at Brown, he, he had a different perspective. Um, but yeah, I do remember the first trip we took back from the Mexico border. We, 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 we used our spring break to go down to, it was like uh, Texas and down to Nuevo Laredo and, uh, just met all these, these homeless migrants who were being released from ICE detention centers and stuff. And I remember we got back to the Providence train station, um, from, I guess we flew back into Boston and we took the train to Providence where our school was. And I remember while we were waiting for a lift or waiting for someone to pick us up, 
he was just looking around kind of shell shocked almost. Um, it was just like, he said, how do we, how do we go back? How do we go back to, to this after we've been talking to these people who have been fleeing gang violence or extortion or being kidnapped by coyotes at the border and rans- uh, having to pay $12,000 ransoms just to get across the river to be thrown in ICE detention centers who have seen people raped and killed next to them. How do we go back and just like um, exist in these, these hallowed, wonderful, but very isolated halls? Uh, and uh, maybe that factored into it. I don't know. But... Um, that's a gutsy move and i respect i respect that a lot now, the older i get i like what you're saying like those path breakers you know not to be bold or romantic or virtuous or righteous about it but because you look almost at a smaller level and it's like where does my next footstep need to fall and Juan made the very brave footstep to to leave the doors of the academy and um and he'll learn more than he ever will finishing his phd um, you can always go back and finish it, I think. But um, the, the education he's going to get the next, you know, four or five years in the Air Force um, is going to be monumental. And I have high hopes that he will live a really good and better life um, and help a lot more people than had he stayed. Um, but, yeah, it's still a scary one when your friends join the military. Yeah, it scares me. <laughs> I had a bunch of friends join it, and I almost did. And I was like, that's not me. Like, that is just not – I'm not a – sit-ups push-ups run around guy <laughs> yeah well he looks great i can tell you that if you're looking for a, a workout routine and diet you know yeah sure. i think the mental stimulation is not quite the level of uh, uh history phd but um uh, he's jacked right now that's good uh i was curious and i guess this goes into because i wanted to talk to you about visiting those you uh ice detention centers mm-hmm. and but you you said some a line well, I mean, I'm quoting you. You said that you 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 love, you're proud to be an American, but the conflict. I'm totally paraphrasing, obviously. Sure, paraphrase away. Make it your own. <laughs> but you know the conflict of also that this country bombed the shit out of your family in Vietnam, and I that hit me because I was like, most people don't have that in this country. Don't have that conflict, or a lot of people don't have that conflict. And I I couldn't. I know it just blew me away to have. I I, I don't think I my my ancestries or my family's not that complex, and I don't have a lot of fondness for how our country behaves. So I was very. I I don't know. I'm just curious if you could speak to that. Yeah, I mean, well, unless you're a pure bloodline back to some, you know, the Windsors or something like that, uh, you're probably, if you go deep enough and do enough genealogical historical research, can find some people who were imperialized or colonized or, you know, ostracized of their religion. If you're super white, you might have to go back a few hundred or thousand years, which is awesome for you. But, you know, it's something that I hope that that's part of the project is to to look at the devastation um, that, that we humans keep bringing upon each other. And um, yeah, I just happened to come from a family that, that happened to more recently, you know, which sucks. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I don't think that kind of um, one, I don't like to uphold that trauma that my mom actually went through and my auntie who's in town right now visiting from France that they went through just talking to them. I don't like to uphold that as like a marker of who we are as a family or people. 
um, because that's not how they represent themselves. And, um, but at the same time, I do think as a teacher, it's really important to go over the, the bloody parts of history. And if your family's involved, it gets pretty complicated. But, you know, that's why I think like having these discussions and using music to sort of, um, I don't know, let people inhabit the research that you do, whether that's personal family history or more like uh, larger sociocultural histories or whatever. Um, I think that's nice because you can kind of sit with a song over and over and over. And the way that I read uh, liner notes, like Dylan liner notes or, you know, looked at Radiohead album covers or something like that. Um, I really appreciate the medium of songwriting and folk songs and albums and LPs and stuff like that and artwork. And so, yeah, it's like, how do you just get away from the trauma porn stuff? Again, that kind of like the only reason that people are listening to you is because you're, you know, singing about something that's air quotes important. Um, how do you make that into good art and, and not just technically good, but art that maybe says something new or, or tells a story that people haven't heard before. Um, and I think that's sort of the goal for this project. And it's not, I can't stress enough. It's, it's, it's not to make, um, people feel bad or good, uh, about anything about themselves or about their country or about other people or foreigners or refugees or whatever. It's just about, um, hopefully providing deeper tools of self-analysis, like going back into your own genealogy, asking your grandma or your mom or your auntie stories, if you still got them, um, finding out your own history. And the more people that do that and bring that like out, the better off we are. Um, that same fellow, Juan, the, the Air Force guy, he's, he's very fond of saying what the citizenry needs is more historical thinking at this point. And what he means by that is just like, not only being knowledgeable about history, but understanding how history informs the present moment. Um, and I think too much of um, what we're doing right now is focusing only on the trauma and not the actual lived experience. Um, yeah. Vietnam was no, no joke bombed mercilessly by the Americans and taken over by the French and the Japanese Chinese before that for way back in our history. So it's a country that's been through a lot of stuff, but you know, I don't know. I've become more and more interesting of just nuancing conversations. So it's like, I hope people come away from the record thinking about like, um, the lives lived during before and after the bombs are falling, you know, bands forming, you know, like you said, best goddamn band in Wyoming. Like what happens when you get put behind barbed wire in a concentration camp? Um, you know, if you have a little bit of agency, you stress that as far as you can, like the Japanese Americans did, which was a lot different from the, the Jewish concentration camps, which are death camps. And they were able to form bands and dance and, my mom's cohort in Vietnam in Saigon, same deal. They got instruments because the Americans sort of brought music and they had money to buy instruments for the kids and stuff like that. Cause they needed entertainment. They, they formed bands and made music that was just as good, if not better than a lot of the American and British rock and roll. So, you know, I, it's telling those stories and it's trying to put you in moments. My friend, Dow Strom, who's a great poet in uh, Portland and a singer, she's Vietnamese too. And she told me the other day, this, this quote I love, she said, Hey man, like we talk about being Asian or Vietnamese or, or not feeling very Asian sometimes. Um, 
And uh, she was like, yeah, Asian people, they just talk about like Asian Americans. They're just kind of always writing and talking about food and trauma. And that's so boring. And I, I really, that's been kind of a motivating um, thing for my thinking recently. It's like, don't just, that's so shallow. Like your family was in a war and you, you come from a culture that likes pho, you know, it's like, you know, Why it's kind of boring. And I, yeah. Why do you, cause I feel like that I know a lot of people who focus on the trauma and I tend to, it's like, I don't even specifically like for myself, like I had a pretty fucked up childhood and it was the same thing where I was like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to, I'm choosing not to allow this to define me, but I know a lot of people who do. And I'm like, why, why do we, why do people focus? Do you think on the trauma over the other many aspects of that, what we could focus on? Yeah. I mean, it's tough because there's many different forms of trauma and that word means different things for different people, you know, words of like, um, you know, surviving and stuff like that. Right. That's very fraught. And I'm, I'm talking in terms of imperialism, colonialism and war. And there's a whole uh, other discourse out there. Um, I guess for me, it's just like, no matter what kind of uh, trauma you've been through, um, there are different ways. It's like the whole path thing, right? The track thing, just because you have come from a country that you can't go back to, um, sort of like my family, like Juan a little bit in Colombia, like all these Central American folks that we made friends with at the border. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to, you don't have to define yourself by that. It doesn't mean you can escape it. It might always be there. You have to deal with it or not deal with it, but there's many different ways to do that. I kind of feel like the discourse these days is like, at least in the circles that I'm in, and that's to say overeducated liberal circles, artsy circles, the trend and the discourse is to dig into that and sort of prioritize that as a marker. Um, and this kind of blends into identity politics and stuff like this as well. Um, and that's just the, the more, the more and more I learn about this, which is a lot. You know, like I said, like I just finished a doctorate, um, the less and less I identify with things like, you know, identifying by my race or by the war that my family survived or, you know, the, the deaths in my family because of that, that war. Um, so yeah, I think, um, I think it's sort of de jour. I think it's the one, one way of handling it, which is to sort of really dive deep and wear it as a badge has become the way that at least again, in my circles, a lot of people think that's the only way you can handle it. Otherwise you're ignoring it. But that's not the way my aunt and my mom have handled it. The, the women closest to me who I know from the Vietnam war, it's not the way that a lot of people who survived that war and reeducation camps and being boat people and all this kind of stuff handle it. Um, it's not the way that a lot of people in the Japanese internment camps handled it, who I, who I talked to, not their activist kind of grandchildren and stuff like that, but people that were actually in those camps. Um, and it's not the way that a lot of people down at the border handle it today. And it's, it's that resilience. It's that always stretching your agency as far as you can, living life to the fullest, even in things that you and I can't imagine. That's what I find most inspiring. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't talk to a therapist. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't uh, dig some meditation, um, address these feelings and stuff like that. But I think, you know, from my own point of view, 
something that is very uh, in vogue right now is this idea of inherited trauma that you get from your ancestors having to go through racial strife or whatever, war, blah, blah, blah. All this like gnarly stuff. But for me, it's like, what do you do? What does it mean? Let's break that down. Like inheritance. Okay. I don't, I can refuse an inheritance or I can give that inheritance to charity, you know, talking in strictly financial terms or whatever, or I can hold on to it for myself and like identify by my inheritance. I think the same thing's kind of true, at least in my, my case. And, and I think there might be better ways to yes, deal with the past. I mean, that's what my work is. It's using art and music and history and research to sort of nuance and discuss and get to the bottom of what actually happened in a lot of these situations but to do so to try to invo invoke joy and use your own agency, especially if you're not behind barbed wire or suffering uh, napalm or machine guns pointed at you and stuff like that. I, I don't think, um, I think now I'm kind of coming out of this process of academia and all this deep research and stuff, not that it won't continue, but professionally anyways. Um, and I think I just feel lucky, man, to be honest with you. I feel lucky because I've seen, you know, through per some personal stuff, but mostly through my research, like how gnarly, how gnarly life can get. And I live in a beautiful city in Portland, Oregon, and there's a bunch of trees out in the park down the street. And I have a whole studio full of musical instruments. Um, doesn't mean I don't suffer from mental health issues and get really sad and depressed and stuff like that. But I'm daily reminded that there is um, nowhere I can't go. Um, in this town, there's no barbed wire keeping me in. And, uh, man, that's what a lucky thing. That usually doesn't happen. She's a <laughs> all good. Yeah. Just TV stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's when you talk about generational trauma, that's when I've become aware of the things that have happened to me because sometimes, and I don't do it, but I catch myself responding as the the map my parents gave me and you're just like i consciously don't want to be my parents uh but it's just so fucking present sometimes and you're like why was that my instinct to react that way when it is not who i am but it's just this ingrained fucking and my dad it's a whole nother. This is about you, so. <laughs> no, man. I feel I feel that though because you can you can get caught up in that and you can kind of swirl in the negativity of that. And sometimes, myself included, the negativity overwhelms you and it just destroys you. Um, yeah. But again, like that's that's the part where the inheritance is like you know here here it is. Yeah. This is this is what we've given you through, whether it's through nature, nurture, DNA, whatever examples, blah blah blah. Um, but you have you're at the point in your life. I'm probably similar age, uh, where we have a chance to be conscious of that, which is something that, for instance, like the bad habits I see in my parents. My mom, for instance, she was 18 years old when she came to the United States and didn't see her family for um, 10 years. She left Vietnam, came to the United States. The rest of the family either were killed or went to France. Um, didn't see him for 10 years, never saw her dad again. So I look at that as like, man, it's just, she's, it's amazing. She's here. It's amazing that she and her sister 
and the rest of our family that, that, that our bloodline is here at all in the world existing. Yeah. And I look at myself and it's like, okay, I am, um, don't have to deal with that. So let me like take those steps that, that, that she has given me and stand upon them. Uh, you know, cause I can, I can rag on my mom all I want. She's got all these bad habits like most people's parents do. And some, uh, you know, uh, you know, just kind of mental health stuff and, uh, stuff that probably believe could have used a therapist if that was a thing in the eighties when I was born, um, you know, f- from her point of view and stuff like that, I could focus on that and get bogged down in that, but I don't know. I don't know. I've just, um, it's not like a self-reliance kind of thing or like a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing, but it's more of just like, I think back to the things I sing about and I study and I think about, I have so much more, again, agency, so much more room to wiggle, so much more privilege. So why not like chase joy, chase bliss Yeah, with, with that, you know? But part of that, like you're saying, is undoing the nastiness that whether it's because of wars or just because of mental health, alcoholism, whatever, our parents kind of pass down to us that isn't great. And then we react in similar ways that we've seen and shown that isn't our fault. You know, I'm trying to breathe through all that (laughs) and acknowledge that, (laughs) acknowledge that, right? Not, not, and not be tough about it, but say it's at some point I do kind of need to just like, it is what it is. And I am where I am. So let's go. Yeah. And I think, I don't, I, I have a lot of Irish heritage, but there's a lot of sweep it under the rug in, in my upbringing. And I don't want to do that. I'm like the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, and I feel like this relates to a little bit what we talk about in history is like, we like the myth of, we like the story. Like history is cause you say, and I thought this was a great cross history is a mess that doesn't make sense. And I was like, we like the story of it all. We do this. Mm -hmm. And I've been analyzing this with my family. It's like, everything is put into these stories and like, but then we ignore all the fucking horrible things that were also (laughs) involved. And I'm like, we do that with the stories of in history. We're like, and then the, they freed the camps in Auschwitz. And I'm like, no, no, no. There's a whole story that goes on after that. (laughs) I just finished a book on it. So I, but it's Mm -hmm. like, uh, and I feel like that's uh, what I'm trying to do is like I spend every day I wake up and I'm like, I meditate. And then I tell myself, you have to approach the day this way. I've, I don't know if that's, I just have to, otherwise I get, I go off the rails. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, what you got to find what works for you. I, I mean, I would definitely encourage, make sure that meditation's coming for me anyway. It's got to come from less of a uh, necessity and more of like that kind of, I'm big on the love and kindness stuff. And, um, you know, just, uh, I don't know, a gentleness, which is not my nature, uh, partly because of my parents, partly just cause I think that's who I am. I'm, I'm a pretty loud boisterous person. That's why I have the ego, the size of a truck that allows me to get on stage and think that people want to hear my, not only what I have to say, but in rhyme, right. We're fucking egomaniacs. Any, any person who has a guitar and wants to get up in front of an audience, like you have to be, 
you have to like have this uh, crazy amount of self-belief, especially in our society that has no room for uh, encouraging or supporting artists, you know, from a very young age on. So I have this and I have to um, balance, right? That's a good word. That's a good thing to, to do, to balance. And, and for me, yeah, meditation and breathing through these hard things that I study and work through and making sure I go to the movies enough and turn my mind off and embrace the love of my life. I'm lucky enough to live with and make art and go to antique stores together and stuff like that. And am kind to the younger people, whether that's like the people I teach or like my nephews or whoever, just like, um, I don't know. But again, going back to what we said at the top of the conversation, I feel like a lot of that comes from the, the road life, the, the instruction of being a rascal of, uh, finding out how badly you can hurt someone. Um, and then also understanding how you're replicating, as you know, behaviors of people who hurt you. And at some point, just sort of putting a stake in the ground and saying, oh, no, 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 this is where this is where we try to stop it because we won't stop it completely. I'll always be um, have a, a lineage of uh, violence or um, abuse that's coursing through me that I have to uh, uh, handle and deal with. But to acknowledge that and understand that's what it is to be human, especially coming from societies and cultures that have some really fucked up past, which is to say all, uh, whether it's violence or patriarchy or whatever. Um, it's acknowledging that. I remember I was at this 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 place called Blue Cliff Monastery. It's one of Thich Nhat Hanh's monasteries uh, in upstate New York. Rest in peace. And uh, spent a week there with my fiance. And I was going through some real stuff. I, I did not have a good time at Brown. I was like, just, uh, let's say, uh, wrong, uh, wrong place, wrong time kind of thing. Um, culturally speaking, um, and per some personal relationships had been like kind of destroyed. Um, some of that was my own like detonation of those. And some of that was, uh, other folks. And in any case, you know, I was going through a very human moment. That I think everyone can relate to those kind of like uh, nadirs, those, those troughs that we get into as people. And I remember sitting in this, um, this, I think it was like a Dharma circle or something. Well, I forget what they called it. It was like a small group session and the fellow leading, it was this French Canadian dude. And he said the most profound thing. He looked around the room and he said, I realized when I was a young man, I was very angry and, uh, I started working at a prison uh, teaching, I think. And, um, said after meeting these men, uh, murderers and rapists and stuff like that, real, real hard stuff. He said he, he had this really honest conversation with, with himself. And he said, I realize I have the heart of a terrorist inside me. I have the heart of a murderer inside me because I'm no different from these people. I just, have different circumstances where I was able to take the right path and not let like, um, that part of my heart kind of come out. And that changed my life. It was so profound to me because it's, it's a forgiveness, not only a forgiveness of the darker parts of yourself, but an acknowledgement. Cause again, going back to that reality TV thing, <laughs> what I love about it is you see the darker side of people. You know, you see these people just get wasted and cry and punch holes in the drywall and be terrible and scream and yell. And that reminds me that I have the same thing inside me. 
and I have let that come out or not even allow, like allowing it to, that has just come out and manifest in the past. Whether that's because of how I've been taught, what I've seen because of broken family stuff, uh, mental health issues, whatever it's happened. And that is still in there. It doesn't go away. It's a potential that I have, you know, maybe me more than others, but I think we all have that anger and sadness and violence in us. That is what it is to be human. And when that guy said that, you know, we're sitting in the most hippy dippy monastery vibe. That's where it was like, Oh wow, this is going to pay off. This is what I need to meditate on that. I have the heart of a terrorist that I'm no different from those fellows who, uh, you know, crashed into the buildings at nine 11, as hard as that is to say, uh, and not from some kind of like Democrat virtue signaling kind of stance, but from like a human, like just looking at life and being like, yeah, if I would gotten caught up in the wrong shit, I'm very lucky, you know? And I think that's what studying history helps me to do as well. It helps me to see some really harrowing times, um, and not judge people who, uh, necessarily committed them. And I think that's going back to what you said, which I guess I said in some, some quote, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm quite proud to be an American, but they did in fact, you know, the reason I'm here is because of the atrocities of war, which they thrust upon my mother's country. Um, because those two things are absolutely true because at the end of the day, while we have had horrible missteps where people have been uh, put into chattel slavery, put behind barbed wire and internment camps today, we treat migrants and immigrants as bad as we ever have in some cases. I find myself in this particular moment of history extremely privileged in a way that if you come from another country, you don't necessarily um, take for granted the way we do here. And I'm here to work through that. Part of that working through is to illuminate some of those atrocities, which I now, by virtue of my profession and my studies, like can speak to, I think, fairly well. And by virtue of my craft as a songwriter, can hopefully share with a lot of people. But yeah, it's, um, it's reconciling the irreconcilable. I think that's what it is to be a good dude and be a good family man and be a good person. And that's taken a long time. And throughout the course of this conversation, you know, it's like, all these, all these things are connected. The life of the rascal on the road, admitting to oneself that you have the heart of a terrorist, of a really, really, you have evil inside you. Um, and acknowledging that and finding ways to process that and finding ways to turn that into love. I think that's, um, I don't know, that's a goal these days, my man. <laughs> that's a goal, right? That's it. Easy, easy peasy. <laughs> I, I agree with you. And it's... I don't know. Yeah. Trying to love myself more is like the key. Otherwise I can't put it outward is how I feel. Don't, don't try so hard. That's what I've found. <laughs> You're very lovable. And the, and the part of you that is dark, the part of you that is whatever your, however you want to phrase it, the, the heart of the terrorist, love that, per, love that part of you the most. You know what I mean? Don't reprimand that, that person. Um, that's, that's all, that's all part of, that's the person that needs the most love that, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh would say that inner child, you know, and your parents inner child that caused all that strife and your parents, parents, you know, and, or the people who, uh, you know, sent those planes and bombs over to Vietnam. Like it's, it's a tough road. It's a tough road to hoe, but, um, you know, 
Yeah. What else are you going to do but try? You know, especially if you got kids and family or your teacher, your, you know, whatever. It's just uh, got to do more of that. And, um, you know, as well as I, I'm assuming you live in the United States. I do. Glad to leave, though, if anyone wants to make an offer. <laughs> if any of my ancestors or, or distant relatives, I mean, in Ireland, want to offer. Yeah, it would be nice to take a break sometimes, man. <laughs> it would be nice. I'm, I'm thinking maybe come back in 10 years, but um, I don't know. My, my, my method is just go out to the woods. There's, there's, no, there's no nations under the forest. That's, yeah. I need more nature. I wanted to ask you. Because you just mentioned like the ego and anybody with a guitar has an ego, et cetera. I'm like, what I want to, what drew you to performing? What was that? What made you think, all right, I can do this or I am going to do this or the early days. Oh, well, I mean, it was the industry I grew up around. My dad was uh, worked for Warner brothers record. That's why I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. So I had this wild upbringing of um, going to hang out with country music stars and all the great songwriters and, <laughs> people who had like managed towns van zandt were like my dad's drinking buddies hearing all these like stories of the texas songwriters from the 70s and meeting dwight yoke and randy travis all these new traditionalists down in nashville um so it's like you know i don't i wouldn't know how to make a shoe but a cobbler's son wouldn't think twice about it probably so part of it was like i knew that this existed and i saw that how the sausage was made from very early age so i think that um was a part of it. But then also my mom's a fine artist too. My mom's a painter. And so my dad's a musician. My mom's a painter. I didn't, the weirdest thing I ever did was go get a doctorate. That's like the, you know, my dad comes from no education whatsoever on the Italian side of our family. Uh, again, mom had to leave a whole country. So these were not particularly like a lot of my colleagues. I found out a lot of their parents were professors or doctors or lawyers and stuff like that. Didn't really have that growing up. But what that did enable me to do was have um, an entitlement to creativity, which whenever I teach songwriting workshops, I always say that's that's the number one thing. You are entitled to be creative, but you have to have that. And that is where the ego comes in. You have to have that self-belief. It's like, no, 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 I, I, I own this. I own, I am entitled to create. I'm entitled to say something. Doesn't mean people have to listen. You know, that's where the craft comes in. And then even then, like a lot of the best songwriters ever, uh, Nick Drake, Towns Van Zandt, don't get the audience they deserve in their lifetime. So it's no guarantee, but, um, I still fight that every day though. You know, even so I make my living off music these days and I still fight that. It's like, Oh, well I got this teaching offer from this school or got this offer for this job to do something else. that seems a little bit more buttoned up, but it's like, man, got to go back to that, that rascal Julian on the road. It's like, <laughs> oh, people are paying you all this money. Just come sing some songs. You better do the best damn job that you can with this because um, it's tough. But it's still, it's still not like a constant. I'm not a very, I'm, I have a big ego in, in terms of getting on stage and allowing me to do that. But uh, terrible social anxiety, um, not really imposter syndrome so much. So never suffered from that. But um, yeah, always a lack of self belief in some ways uh, as well. Again, it's like we have uh, we have the coward and we have the king inside of us at all times. You know. Yeah, I don't think I've met anybody creative who doesn't have that conflict anyone that i that i personally uh, am drawn to yeah yeah i think, I yeah. think there's a lot of uh, others <laughs> 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 
Yeah. I mean, I think, I think so when I say ego, like we, we think of that as a bad thing and I think it does need to be checked. I think most people could use a lot more of it when it comes to creativity. Right. Um, I think it's, uh, folks in politics and finance and stuff like that, that have egos that are truly detrimental to our society. I think, uh, if your ego leads you to, um, being on stage or writing a book and thinking that you, you're entitled to do that, I think that's a great thing. You know, you might be a pill like I have been and and am at certain times in my life. I think that kind of comes with the territory of like, um, stretching yourself so thin in pursuit of your art and, uh, you know, sharing that with the world. It's, it's a, it's a way more, I have a lot more fun the weeks where I'm just hiking around and watching TV than I do. Um, when I'm really like in it and like, just like going through some, you know, of the, uh, the art stuff, but that said, man, um, I think it's a wonderful pursuit and yeah, I just encourage more people to be entitled and, and, um, self-believing and, and, egotistical when it comes to sharing their story. Um, that, that, yeah, it's kind of how I teach too. Yeah. I mean, that's what I've learned early on from becoming a Stud Sturgill fan as a kid is like, everybody has a story. Most yeah. people have an interesting story or have some, yes. and you can find it. And same with, uh, um, Spalding Gray would sometimes pull up people from the audience and just interview random people and find these, like, it's like everyone has something to say or a, history that is interesting oh absolutely I, I i love it man i mean that's 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 modus operandi for me because like before i got my phd sort of shifted um into this kind of uh, research on immigrants and, and asian americans trans-pacific crossings and stuff like that um because that became more politically potent while i was in grad school i was again my phd during the trump trump years basically so it got very activated um, in a way that I'm not particularly proud of now, um, it felt very mob mentality. And I think we still are all in that. Um, but before that, I, the, the project I left on the table that I came to Brown to work on was about street musicians. And I just had this beautiful year of traveling around Europe on Brown's dime busking and talking to street musicians and clowns and mimes and all these people, jugglers, a uh, real old school, um, ancient art forms and stuff like that and just hanging around the great cities of Europe and very much on the basis of everyone's got a story. And I spent most of my life passing these people by and then I became a busker in my twenties when we were on tour just to kind of kill time during the day. Cause I was sober <laughs> and I hung over and, uh, and, and my, one of my best friends in the band had been a big busker when she was growing up. Um, but, uh, yeah. Like that's, that's, that's what I'm all about. It's just every single person has an interesting story, you know, and you map that onto yeah, a lot of times you'll talk to these people who have lived through stuff that I study, like the Japanese camps and the reeducation camps or the ice detention centers. And a lot of people are like, Oh, I don't really have a lot to say, you know, but you do, if you just hang and just hang around, you'll hear some stories and yeah, totally on that. Everyone has a story tip. Yeah, when you would t talk to people, because I saw you had the Zoom recorder with you, did it take, did you have an approach that would get people to warm up to speaking? Because I know a lot of people, I just noticed like when there's a mic or something in their face, they get, there's like, they freeze up. But if you do it where in an abstract way or hide something, they, they're more mm -hmm. like, whatever, you know, loose. 
Yeah, I mean, so two things. I always tell people be a good hang. That's first and foremost. That's a little less teachable, but I think it's something we can cultivate more, especially in the academy. We're not necessarily the best hangs. Uh, and part of that is like, I now I only do ethnography, uh, interview people as part of like the work that I do as a musician. So I'm bringing something first and foremost, uh, you know, it's not that old school anthropological mo model of like, let me go investigate the other from, from my perch. You know, it's like, I'm here, Hey, come out to a concert. And, uh, inevitably a lot of people who are drawn to the no, no boy concerts might have families who immigrated recently or were refugees and might have more stories, which then goes into the catalog of songwriting and research that I do. Um, so it's like one, be a good hang. And then two, come with an act of service. You know, when we were down at the border, we would just go buy out. Um, I take all the money it was just cause I was making pretty good money and from no, no boy. And I was on a grad stipend. So all the money from no, no boy while I was in school went to helping out uh, refugees hundred percent. And so we'd go buy out all the children's underwear and all the toys at the Walmart in Laredo and bring it to like the holding center. Uh, shout out to pastor Mike, who does great work housing people who were just released from ice detention centers when we were there and then spending the day playing with kids or doing some cooking or maybe some construction, uh, play a concert for them, stuff like that, you know? So, so make sure you're just not taking, um, it's something I'm very cognizant of and you get way better stuff because you are just sort of, um, you're part of it. You're part of the, the, the life that you're trying to capture. Um, you know, and I think, uh, yeah, so active service, good hang. It's pretty simple. Thank you very much for listening to this conversation with No No Boy, Julian Separiti. Remember, there's a part two that lives on my Patreon, themattdwyer.com. $5 a month, you could become a Patreon subscriber. And listen to the part twos. There's many part two up there as well. You can support, that supports my podcast and helps me keep going with it. Furthermore, if you can't afford to be a Patreon subscriber, I totally understand. The world is tough. It's tough out there. You can just tell your friends. If you enjoy the podcast, just tell your friends about it. That would mean more to me than money, because money is the root of all evil. So says a book that I don't read. Thank you very much. Enjoy your day. And that's a story from Old Hot Mountain. I'm the best band you never did.